All right. Welcome, everyone, um, to the last journal club for 2021 uh, for the journal Chest. Um, my name is Divya Patel. I'm an associate professor at the University of Florida, and I'm also the social media editor for the journal Chest. I have with me my co-moderator, Dr. Venetia Arelli. Um, she is a staff physician at Stonecrest Medical Center, and she's also a social media editor for the journal Chest. Um, we are really happy and pleased to present um, a, a, this brand new paper that's been published in, in the December 2021 uh, edition of CHEST, um, which Venetia and I thought was a really great article, clinically relevant and useful. Um, so I'm going to uh, introduce uh, two of the authors that are with us and our content liaison. So first I have with me Dr. Mark Fortin, who is a clinical professor in the Department of Respirology at Quebec Heart and Lung Institute, and Dr. Pascalin Roy, who's a, a interventional pulmonary fellow at McGill University. Finally, we have with us Dr. Ann Gonzalez, who's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at McGill University, and her expertise and research is also in lung cancer. Um, before we start, uh, I'm going to give the authors a chance to present their disclosures. So hi everyone, uh, I don't have any uh, uh, conflicts of interest in, uh, associated with the presentation today. Uh, hi, hi, I'm Marc Fortin. Uh, I have uh, two small conflicts of interest. Uh, EBIS is fairly related to the Olympus company and I received uh, research funding from Olympus and uh, speaker funding from Olympus in the past. Great, thank you so much. Dr. Gonzalez, do you have any disclosures you wanna make? No disclosures. Thank you. So um, in that case, we're going to get started. Uh, I'm going to actually start with Dr. Roy. Um, just uh, FYI, Dr. Arelli is going to be um, putting a link for the paper and, and the calculator that was developed by the authors in the chat, um, in the chat box. Please um, send us your questions. Um, as we go along, we'd love to hear from you and get some feedback from you. All right, so Dr. Roy, um, can you please um, discuss a little bit about occult mediastinal disease? Like, what does that mean and why is it important? Uh, and, and like, why should a clinician care about that? So uh, occult uh, mediastinal uh, disease is uh, finding cancer in the lymph node that did not look uh, suspicious based on imaging. Uh, so, for example, for a CT scan, the, the use criteria is uh, less than one centimeter um, on short axis. And for PET scan, it's uh, less than 2.5 of SUV. So if you find cancer, uh, would it be during preoperative mediastinal staging or at surgery? Uh, this would be called occult mediastinal uh, disease. And... Of course, CT and PET-CT are now used routinely for, uh, this, for the purpose of lung cancer staging, uh, but this, despite enhancing the sensitivity, sensitivity to detect occult metastasis uh, compared to CT scan alone, there is still a gap between clinical and pathological stage that needs to, uh, to be improved. And uh, EBUS is uh, clearly a way to decrease this gap. Um, and a major part of the work of interventional pulmonologists is to perform EBUS for mediastinal lymph node staging. Um, so, um, of course, uh, we, we, we 
have a particular interest for the evidence between behind the indications for a preoperative mediastinal lymph node staging uh, suggested by the by the guidelines. And however, despite the recommendations from the guidelines, uh, the occurrence of uh, occult mediastinal disease, uh, I, I'm going to uh, call OMD, uh, remains about 10%. Um, and there was a nice meta-analysis in the GT JTO in 2019 by Busuma and colleagues that uh, demonstrated that uh, very well. And since the prognosis of patients with uh, occult uh, nodal disease is worse, we need to improve, improve this, these numbers. Um, and I'm just going to share uh, share you what what what's, what it means uh, literally. So here here you would have an example just uh, of uh, a station one cl clinical stage one uh, not stage one N1 disease on a PET scan. Uh, so you you can see that there's lymph node disease in station 10R here. Uh, so this would just be an example of station N1 uh, of N1 disease and clinical N2 uh, implies uh, disease in the mediastinal lymph node stations. So you have on the on the left 4R station with enlarged lymph nodes based on this on the CT, and on the right you have a st station seven lymph node that is enlarged. And it's important to uh, to consider because when you find N2 disease uh, based on the eighth edition of the lung cancer staging group, uh, the, the, stage, the stage is gonna uh, get higher. So if you have a 2B stage and then you, you find occult mediastinal disease, it means that now the patient is stage 3A. And if he's stage 3A, then he might be stage 3B. So this is, this is why it's important and it's impacting uh, prognosis for, uh, for the patient and it might change the management of the, uh, of the, the patient. So some, uh, some people suggest that to improve the, 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 the numbers, uh, this 10%, uh, you, you should maybe perform a preoperative staging EBUS in all patients. But even though it's, it, is, it is a very safe procedure, we disagree with, uh, with this uh, uh, affirmation because we have shown uh, before that the sensitivity of EBUS and negative predictive value in the radiologically normal metastinum is low and the, the number needed to test might be as high as 57 to avoid an upfront surgery for OMD. Um, and also establishing the OMD probability may be useful to identify patients at high risk of discovery of N2 disease at surgery after after EBUS to make a better use of the procedure. And finally, there are some others also that suggest confirming a negative EBUS with mediastinoscopy uh, in patients with high risk of OMD. So this is all uh, what occult mediastinal disease uh, uh, means for us and for our clinicians. Um, that's great, Dr. Roy. Thank you for uh, reviewing that with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what the current guidelines uh, are around occult malignant disease, like which guidelines address it and what they say? Um, and one other thing, could you talk about risk factors uh, specific, like when should a clinician be worried about occult malignant disease? So uh, there are, I would say, uh, two or three main guidelines uh, who have uh, uh, specific re recommendations for 
uh, staging of the mediastinum preoperatively. Uh, the chest, the chest guideline or ACCP guidelines uh, recommend that that uh, patients who have um, uh, an abnormal uh, CN1 uh, stage, stage uh, beforehand and the central lesion should undergo mediastinal staging and ESTS guidelines. So European guidelines also su suggest preoperative staging in clinical stage two, uh, T2 or higher tumor. So tumors of higher than three centimeters should, should be, should have a mediastinal staging preoperatively. Uh, so it, it is, the only difference is the, in the ACCP, they don't really consider the, the size of the tumor, but in the ESTS, they consider the size of the tumor. And uh, these recommendations are based on the risk factors uh, known for medicinal, uh, occult medicinal uh, disease. So, so there, are, there are others that, that were tested like age, uh, sex. Uh, there's also the, the lesion SUV, uh, histology, but not all of them have, have, have been demonstrated as um, always significant in, in different cohorts. So th these, are, these were the ones that were retained by the, the guidelines. Okay, thank you for reviewing that. Um, so let's, let's talk about your study. So based on what you um, explained to about occult malignant disease, um, what was the aim of your study? What was your objective? So uh, our goal was to try to build a prediction model to evaluate the individual risk for uh, occult mediastinal disease in patients with a radi radiologically normal mediastinum. Um, a model like this would help to decide on the need for preoperative invasive mediastinal staging and the need for confirmation mediastinoscopy after a negative EBUS for a specific patient. There are already scores and or prediction models that exist, but they have their pitfalls in, in our opinion, uh, mainly because of their derivation from EBUS results instead of uh, surgical results. And the fact that they are driven by abnormal mediastinum on CT or PET. Um, so this, this, was, uh, this was something that, that, that we aim to, uh, to address in the study. And another thing also is that um, I, I, I told you about the different risk factors for occult mediastinal disease, but an interesting parameter which had been overlooked in the literature, in the literature is lymph node size. It had always been uh, used as a, a dichotomous variable, so smaller than one centimeter or larger than one centi centimeter. But we felt we lost information by not using the lymph node size as a continuous variable. This was based on uh, our personal experience uh, uh, at our institute and also of colleagues from other institutions. Because when you perform a staging EBUS, if you see that there's a nine millimeters uh, well-defined round lymph node, it is not the same as an ill-defined, barely visible two or three millimeter lymph node before performing the EBUS. If you see that there's no visible lymph node or only lymph nodes under five millimeters, you know there is a big chance that you are not going to find anything significant. So using lymph node size as a continuous variable instead of uh, the one centimeter cutoff seemed enticing to, uh, to analyze. Yeah, I, I found that uh, using lymph node size as a continuous variable in your study was a really unique aspect of, of what you guys were studying. Um, so 
um, just to get into your study a little bit more, can you, I'm going to share a slide of the figures and the, and the tables in the article, but could you walk us through who you included and excluded in the study, please? So uh, we, we use the prospective database of uh, lung cancer of our institute where all patients with uh, cancer diagnosis of, or surgery for cancer are, are compiled. And to gather enough patients, we included patients from 2014 to 2018. And we identified all, uh, all patients with a radiologically normal metastinum and as, a, as defined by lymph nodes under one centimeter and SUV under 2.5 for station for station uh, for N2 and N3 lymph nodes. And we only included non-small cell lung cancers also of all sizes, um, so uh, import, very importantly. And they could be CN0 or CN1, meaning that they, they could have uh, they, they could have higher uh, abnormal higher uh, uh, lymph nodes. Uh, we, uh, we excluded patients who had um, different patterns or probability of OMD uh, or results that would be hard to interpret like uh, synchronous tumors or history of prior lung cancer because they do not necessarily met metastasize the same way. And also we excluded patients who had uh, uh, sarcoidosis or chronic, uh, chronic leukemia because they, are, they have other reasons to have abnormal uh, metastinal adenopathies and this would add noise to the, to the analysis. And we only included patients who had a proper uh, surgical lens dissection. So all, all in all, it, it meant uh, 800 patients. Um, uh, so three, uh, about 300 of them uh, underwent inv invasive staging. So invasive, invasive staging means uh, mediastinoscopy or EBUS before, uh, before a surgery, or others, and uh, 518 others were directly sent to, uh, to surgery. Uh, and what you see on figure one is that 12 of the patients who underwent in the invasive staging uh, on, finally uh, had a, PA, a finding of a, an abnormal uh, medicinal lymph node, so they did not un, uh, undergo surgery. And all the other ones un, underwent surgery with uh, full dissection, uh, and, were in, and they were all included in the, in the study eventually. So uh, and and we what we did what, what we did also is that we we uh, reviewed individually uh, and the largest lymph node within the drainage territory of the tumor uh, was measured. Uh, if uh, multiple lymph nodes were of similar size, uh, we measured them to ensure which one was the largest. And since uh, we wanted to ensure reproducibility uh, measurements were repeated by a second observer in a large sample and we we, we did the correlation test to, uh, to to see if everything was good between the two observers and uh, and that that's pretty much it and in the in the, this table one just right here uh, you can you you can notice that uh, these uh, are people with the, the classical uh, characteristics of people who have the uh, surgery for lung cancer. So people around uh, 65, uh, 65 years old, uh, now mainly uh, fe uh, female in, 2000, in, in, in the years 2010 and, and afterwards uh, with uh, significant uh, smoking history. And between the development and the validation cohort of, uh, of, the, of the model, 
um, there was no significant difference in the in the, the patients. Patient, yeah. The patient characteristics, yeah. yeah. I just want to just point the audience to the fact that the patients that were included in the study, um, the majority were in the development cohort, and there was a validation cohort from the same institution and the same data set. So thank you so much for reviewing all that with us, Dr. Roy. I'm going to ask Dr. Fortin to um, chime in on the study, and um, let's talk about the results a little bit. So, um, and I'm going to I'm going to show the tables and again figures in the in the paper, and if you could just talk us through what your findings were um, as we go along. Sure. Uh, so when we we look at table two, it's basically the first analysis we did, which was a univariate, very simple analysis to find which uh, factors we had pre-identified were correlated uh, with the presence of the presence of occult mediastinal disease. So um, if you look at the PINA value numbers on the right, you can see that uh, lymph node uh, size, as mentioned by Pascalin, which is the last value, uh, was very significantly associated with the presence of occult mediastinal disease, uh, clinical N1 disease, so a larger hypermetabolic higher lymph nodes were also associated. And uh, the central location of the tumor was also associated with the presence of occult mediastinal disease. Uh, you'll see later on tumor SUV was uh, not statistically significantly associated, but with uh, a trend towards significant association. And it was still relevant in a multivariate model later on, although individually it was not statistically significant. Uh, tumor size, interestingly, as Pascal I mentioned, which is amongst the ESTS criteria for staging, uh, was not significantly associated and not even close to be associated with the presence of occult mediastinal disease. So that was very interesting because in the guidelines currently you could stage a patient based only on those criteria, but in our court, uh, as in other large courts and in other scores uh, that we will mention, uh, tumor size was not associated with the presence of occult mediastinal disease. Uh, we looked at histology. Histology in other studies is on and off. Adenocarcinoma sometimes is associated in certain studies. Uh, we may have been a little underpowered to find this since the vast majority of tumors were adenocarcinoma. Uh, so there wasn't much to compare with. Uh, that's pretty much the information we have in this table too, which is our univariate analysis. As you can see, we didn't try to include 50 parameters, which I think statistically would have not have been right. We limited to factors that were identified previously as interesting. And we also added lymph node size, which was not previously studied, but which was something that was uh, clinically plausible. So that's uh, how we um, identified the potential risk factors. If we go to table three, uh, you'll see the results of the multivariate analysis. Um, we basically uh, looked at different models and their um, IPK inference criteria and their Bayesian inference criteria values to decide which combination uh, yielded the best um, model. And what we found is a model which included central location, tumor uh, maximum SUV, clinical presence of clinical N1 disease and lymph node size. And when you look at the p-values in multivariate analysis, the only factor that was significantly independently associated with occult mediastinal disease was the factor that we introduced for the first time and which was lymph node size. Uh, 
as Pascal said, it just made sense to us. And from clinical experience, uh, we perform staging. And every time we look at the CT prior to the procedure and we say, well, I don't really see a lymph node on CT. Well, we're not going to discover unless the CT is old and outdated or there's been rapid progression. We're not going to see a nine millimeter lymph node that wasn't seen on CT. And those patients have a normal mediastinum, uh, but it's not that normal. So not all uh, normal mediastinum are created equal. Uh, some are certainly more suspicious than others. And that's what the model, uh, sh the model showed that it was a very uh, interesting factor clinically to help identify patients. And that wasn't used currently in any guidelines in any model. So uh, after that, we looked basically just at the performance in table four uh, of our score. Uh, so in this table, what we see is sensitivity, specificity, uh, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and area under the curve. Uh, you can look at the combined cohort first. So what the combined cohort shows you is sensitivity is about 73%. We would have liked a 95%, but we weren't able to identify all patients with occult mediastinal disease. Specificity was pretty good, around 80%. And area on the under the curve was very good at uh, an AUC of 0.85. Um, so after obtaining those results, we said, well, it's an interesting model. Certainly we don't identify all patients with occult mediastinal disease, but we seem to identify a high proportion of them and we seem to be rather specific. Uh, the next question was really, how does this compare to what we currently do? And the other thing you need to look at in this table is um, it's uh, the comparison between the, the derivation and the validation court. Uh, how did the score perform in a different court of patients? And when you look at uh, those numbers, basically they're very similar. So which is a, a very good sign. It shows that the, the validation court confirms our findings. Uh, we have to mention the caveat here, an ideal validation court would have been an external uh, cohort from a different clinic with people who do things differently and have a different patient population. And ideally also a court from another time in the past or the future. Uh, we, we didn't have that at the time. So uh, we, we don't have external validation and that's something clearly that needs to be um, uh, mentioned and taken into account prior to using this wide scale uh, that is our findings, but maybe your patients have something different. So we need some somebody outside to validate that, but we'll, we'll maybe talk about that later. Great, thank you. Thank you for talking us through all, all these results and the tables. Um, I do wanna show um, the area or the ROC curve that was presented in the paper um, that um, shows uh, the area under the curve. Um, so the next section I want to talk about is, um, you know, how does this, you know, uh, development of your model and then how the results of your model compare to what we already have, which are uh, two guidelines. Yes. So we, we compared our results to the application of the ACCP and the ES, ESTS guidelines, which were mentioned by uh, Pascalin uh, before. But the first thing uh, you need to understand it is how we use our model, because what you get is a probability. You don't get a yes, no answer. So we uh, decided, pr decided prior to uh, performing any stats on the project and even building the model that our cutoff would be 10%. Uh, we felt that if there was a higher than 10% risk of occult mediastinal disease, 
eBoss was probably worth it. If uh, the probability was less than 10%, then you were most likely to do too many eBisses uh, for, um, for no reason, basically, or in patients which don't have occult mediastinal disease. Uh, this number was chosen from surgical data, which is not that robust. Uh, it's basically the number which is um, quoted by thoracic surgeries associations as the acceptable rate of occult mediastinal disease below 10%. So that's why we chose it, but we would have liked to have more solid evidence to base our decision on. And in the manuscript, uh, you can read the section where we explored uh, other cutoff values. And um, basically that section showed that we were pretty lucky. <laughs> and I think we maybe chose uh, wisely. Uh, or cutoff was almost optimal. 15% would have, would have yielded the perfect match between sensitivity, sensitivity and specificity. Uh, but again, also the answer depends on, uh, on how you want to use it. If you want to be very, very cautious and you don't want to miss, uh, miss any occult mediastinal disease, well, probably you, want, you may want to shift maybe towards 5%. And if you're more... Uh, Laxist, you want to save your resources in EBIS and maybe do a couple of uh, thoracoscopies that turn out uh, to show occult mediastinal disease you don't mind, well, you can maybe increase towards 50%. What the validation uh, of different cutoffs showed us is that it doesn't seem to be reasonable to move much higher than 15%, and below 10%. Uh, is uh, is probably not much better e either. So very between 10 and 50% is the cutoff you should choose when you use this model to decide if you're going to send the patient for EBUS prior to surgery. So if the patient's below 10% risk of occult mediastinal disease, I think there's no worry to send them to surgery. If he's above 15%, you should certainly send him for surgery. 10 to 15% is, uh, is, should be based on, every, on the single patient. And there's also patients where surgeons say, well, or, or score is now used uh, routinely in our institution, but sometimes the surgeon sends me a patient. And at first they didn't want to adopt the score. And I said, well, I won't do the EBUS if the percentage calculated is not on the request. And now they're putting it on every request. And sometimes they put it on request and it's below 10%, but they uh, give me the reason why they want to do it. And they'll tell me, well, I know it's 7%, but this patient will need a pneumonectomy. He's frail. It's uh, at-risk surgery. I want to be more cautious with this patient. And I, I'm already happy to have adopted it. So I, I collaborate and I'll do it in lower-risk patient when it makes sense to me. So when we, after mentioning this cutoff value and how it was decided, we can look at uh, what the results are. So when you compare um, the different scores, when you look at sensitivity, uh, sensitivity, which is, I think, the most important factor here, is how many patients are we missing and then are we sending to surgery? Uh, the guideline or the model that performs the best is actually the Quebec model with a sensitivity of 73%, so almost 20% uh, higher than the ACCP guidelines. And uh, the ES. TS guidelines are actually pretty close to our model. So if you recall what Pascalin said earlier, uh, the ES TS guidelines will uh, screen uh, will screen positive or will send to EBIS more patients because they have three criteria, including the side, uh, the size. But despite them sending more patients to EBIS, they identified less patients with occult mediastinal disease than our model. And when you look at area under the curve. 
Um, basically, our model also outperforms significantly current guidelines. And not surprisingly, chest guidelines, which uh, includes less criteria, are more specific than ESTS because there's less criteria, so they'll send less people for EBUS. Sensitivity is a bit better with ESTS because uh, there's less criteria, uh, but on both factors, our model outperforms them. So basically, we'll send less people to EBUS and we'll find more people with occult mediastinal disease. And if you want to put that into numbers, you can look at, look at our cohort and say, well, we have 800, and pa 800 patients. If you use uh, the Quebec prediction model, basically uh, out of uh, the 800, patient, uh, 800 patients, the Quebec model will send 188 uh, patients to EBUS, so almost one in four. ACCP will send a similar number, 198. Uh, ESTS will sign will send almost half of them, 391, uh, to preoperative EBUS. And when you look at the occult mediastinal uh, rate you're going to find at surgery, with the Quebec prediction model, you're going to be at 5.8%. With the ESDS, which sends twice as many patients to preoperative staging, you'll be a little higher at 6%. And with the ACCP model, you'll be at 6.7%. So despite sending less people to EBUS, you get less occult mediastinal disease. And another important thing is when you look at number needed to screen, uh, basically, if you do five EBISs with our model, you'll find one occult mediastinal disease, which uh, is pretty cost effective when you think about the costs and the risk of an EBIS compared to the cost and the risk of a thoracoscopy, which finds occult mediastinal disease. ESTS has a number needed to screen of 16, and ACCP has a number screen needed to screen of 10. Um, so those numbers show that uh, in this cohort, we outperformed those models. We have to be honest, though, that uh, our model was built in the cohort where we're looking at numbers. So it's normal for a model which is built in a cohort to perform better in this cohort. And that's a reason why an external validation is very important uh, to go further with this. A good example of use of this is uh, during the pandemic, uh, we, we took the opportunity to use this model and to uh, do less exams since we didn't have the resources or nurses were sent to co for COVID care or nurses were COVID positive, doctors were COVID positive, and we didn't have our usual resources. We use this model and by using it, uh, some doctors could see it as a as bad business, but we decreased our e-bus volume uh, by about 20%. Uh, and we actually, during that time, slightly decreased the rate of occult mediastinal disease uh, at surgery, despite decreasing the number of procedures we were doing. And I think we can't really argue that uh, everybody wins, basically, when you when we do something like that. And also, you uh, spare resources in the OR. They're not going to take one of their operative priority to op operate on someone which is occult and uh, 2 disease. So that's how our results compare to current guidelines. Um, thank you so much for reviewing those results. Um, I was really surprised by how much better your scoring system did compared to the guidelines. Um, we're going to um, talk about a little bit about, um, you know, what I want to kind of ask both of you, actually, Dr. Roy and Dr. Fortin, and maybe we can get Dr. Gonzalez in here as well. Um, you know, what do you think made this particular um, model better than the others? Like, is, is, was there any specific factors that you think 
played a bigger role that the others didn't include? Was it the continuous, the use of, you know, lymph node size as a continuous variable? What do you think could be attributed to that? So, uh, I think that I think that the the new the new criteria for largest medicinal lymph node is really the one that is driving the results uh, in, in our favor, uh, because that's something that's not at all considered in the in the other uh, in the other criteria given in the guidelines, and and the uh, the, the guidelines are also gi giving recommendations. Uh, based on risk factors that are associated with uh, acromedestinal disease, but it's it's still an association, so a combination of association that is not perfect. So it's it's expected that uh, such recommendations are not going to be perfect, and you are going to uh, have a sensitivity and a specificity specificity that are not uh, probably up to optimal uh, in the in this context. So uh, I, I think. Really, the, the 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 medicinal lymph node size is really what uh, what got, got us uh, ahead of, of the guidelines. I agree with Pascal. I think uh, the lymph node size was really the driver of the results, and it wasn't there before. And as Pascal said, well, being multivariate uh, takes out factors which aren't really significant, and uh, that's that's basically what you get with tumor size. I, I had the feeling before that four or five centimeter tumors with no other risk factors for occult mediastinal disease were not that high yield, and that's that's what our results also showed. So being multivariate. You, you take into uh, consideration other factors, not being multivariate. If you have a seven centimeter tumor, you know that at some point it's gonna be central if you take the inner portion of the tumor. So is it the fact that the tumor is large or the fact that the tumor is central that creates the occult or creates the association with occult mediastinal disease? And um, basically by doing a multivariate model, you take into consideration all those interactions and you take out the noise like tumor size and you keep uh, what is pertinent. So, yeah. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, um, do you agree with, with the authors that the lymph node side was the biggest factor that made their, and using it as a continuous variable made their predictive model more accurate than the guidelines? Yeah, I, I think it certainly sounds like it is. And the, the comparison of, of, of their model with the, the ACCP guidelines and the ESTS guidelines is, is pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I do wonder if they can comment on, um, based on the lymph node size, they, they found occult mediastinal disease and, and did it tend to be single or multiple station N2? Of course, the management of stage 3A lung cancer is, is there's still some controversy. And so, so I wonder if the surgeon's feeling may have been, uh, well, if, if it's single station N2, it's okay to find it at surgery, we'll take it out. So, so if they can comment on that, on the type of occult mediastinal disease they were finding with these criteria. Uh, we, we looked at that and that's very interesting. Uh, that's one of the downsides. Uh, the problem is we don't really know what we're going to do with the answer. So do you want the, op op the information operatively? Uh, and that's a, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, the philosophy in our institution, and I know it's not the same everywhere, and sometimes even in, uh, in multidisciplinary oncology discussions, I almost get frustrated because in our institution, we almost never operate on N2 disease, uh, especially in older patients, even if it's single station and small disease. And personally, if if I had, I had lung cancer and I had single station, small volume disease, I would certainly be interested in getting surgery. So I think it, the, the, um, 
you have to decide before the EBIS what you're going to do with the patient. If someone sends me a patient uh, for EBIS with a normal mediastinum and they think they're going to operate anyway if I find a single station and two disease, well, why are you sending the patient to me for the reason that maybe I will find multi-station and two diseases? Is that, is that the reason why you're sending them? So that you have to, uh, to understand before and um, you have to make the reflection before sending the patient for EBUS. It's not always easy to, to do, but um, that's something you have to factor in. And when you look at what we found for the occult mediastinal disease, it was uh, the vast majority was single station and two disease. So there were cases of uh, two and three lymph node stations involved, but the vast majority was single station. One question that I wondered sometimes is, did they fully complete their lymph node the dissection when they received the frozen section back, which said there was N2 disease? Uh, when I, we talk to surgeons, I, they say, well, it takes time to get the frozen section back. Mm -hmm. So most of the time when I get the frozen section back, I have most of my lymph node dissection done. So the number of occult... Uh, stations is reliable. So it seems to be mainly single station and two disease. So you could certainly mm -hmm. ask the question, well, why don't I just send this patient to surgery? And I think if your answer is, if he has single station and two disease, I'll operate on him anyway, uh, then maybe uh, you don't need to send him for EBUS and you don't need to use the model. Uh, you could always fall on more than one station, but the risk is very, very small uh in our court so uh it certainly changes and there's also evolving literature uh if we use pre-op eventually i'm not saying it's uh, there's any significant even evidence to do it right now but if studies show that we need uh neoadjuvant treatment if you have into the disease well we need to find this into disease before surgery but currently also it'll depend we have surgeons here well they treat uh I think rationally they'll, they'll treat station five and six disease, uh, which has a prognosis, which is between N2 and N2, uh, N1 and N2 differently. They'll say, well, it's an N1.5 and they'll give adjuvant chemotherapy and not neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So in this situation, it won't change. But when we find in our institution a fit uh, patient, which has a known or not known single station and two disease, uh, most of the time they'll do neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So it'll be pertinent to discover it preoperatively uh, and not them perform that, close the patient, send them to. So uh, it really depends on the patient and the question is good. And I hope that in 10 years, the, this uh, score won't go uh, into uh, deep into the drawers because people just I've realized that you don't need to know the N2 status preoperatively because you just operate and you don't give neoadjuvant treatment and surgery is the right solution if the patient's fit. We don't have the full information yet to say if this is completely useful or just partly useful. Right. Fair enough. And was generally the single station N2 you found the largest mediastinal node that you'd identified on imaging? It was generally. Yeah, yeah. it was generally Makes the sense. node that we thought was suspicious. Right. Um, Dr. Fortin, just to kind of go back a little bit, and I want to get Dr. Gonzalez's opinion on this as well. You know, you guys used uh, lymph node size as a continuous variable. So based on the results of this study, like um, what range size of lymph nodes would you want to sample? Like, you know, anything above seven millimeters, and I'm going to sample that or 
what does this, how does this study inform what you're going to do in your clinical practice in terms of lymph node size? Yeah, um, the issue is uh, studies have shown that CT and EBIS size doesn't correlate perfectly. Uh, so you, it depends. The question is, um, are you mentioning, uh, the question you're mentioning, is that based on what we find on EBIS or CT? Because personally... Well, I would say CT because I think that's what you did in the study, correct? You used the lymph node size from the CT. Yeah. We, we looked at um, using lymph node size, and at first I said, well, it's counterintuitive. We're basically uh, trying to create a cutoff after saying we should use this as a continuous variable to get the most information out. And the optimal cutoff would have been seven milliliters. So as you mentioned spontaneously, it, it seems like the optimal cutoff, if you would like to use a cutoff, but when we looked at models, they didn't perform as well as using it as a continuous variable. So you're measuring it, you're calculating the model. Why not just use it as a continuous variable? Because six is not seven and nine is clearly worse than seven. And later on, if we have time or if people want to do it at home and download the model, you can put uh, exactly the same parameters and just go and increase one by one the millimeter at a time the size of your lymph node. And you'll see the probability go up very quickly. So seven is not nine. And... So, so I think the, we should use it as a continuous variable. I don't know if Anne and, and Pascal and I agree, but. Well, and it is just to clarify, it is short axis that you were measuring yeah. on CT yes. to enter your largest mediastinal node, right? Yeah. Yes. And you'll see the other thing that I was surprised when we did the validation, the, cap, uh, the kappa, when we compare measurements to, by two blinded users uh, was almost 0.8, which is really good for a correlation kappa. And I was surprised but how well we call it correlated because uh, uh, you probably all have tried to look at uh, some stations are easy for our generally you don't have anything uh, which abuts the lymph node so you can clearly say well it starts here it finishes here and measure it but when you look at station seven with the esophagus the carina sometimes it's difficult to measure so i was really pleased when we we came up with the kappa between that Julien, uh, which was uh, the fellow who mainly worked on the project, and uh, the two other observers. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it seems pretty reliable and it's short access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, was, I think. Oh, go ahead, Pascal. Please. I, I think that's something that, that's interesting. With that is, it's really pragmatic. So it's something that you just can do on your uh, on your own, uh, and that's what we did. Uh, like we measured it uh, one, uh, like ourselves. And uh, it was just clinicians, not a, not a program, not a radiologist uh, specifically. You can do it on your own. And uh, there's a good uh, correlation between the two, uh, two readers. So that is very pragmatic. And uh, that's what I like also from this work. Yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed uh, by your fellows, Dr. Fortin. Like that kappa was shocking. In ILD, we can't even get close to that kind of kappa, even amongst radiologists. Um, so very, very impressive. And um, so... I think the most interesting thing that you guys mentioned um, during this discussion is the fact that you were using this um, model during your COVID-19 uh, pandemic to, you know, given the, the, the decrease in resources that we all experienced during this time. Um, I think that's very unique because, you know, many of our colleagues that practice around the world, they don't have access to EBUS. Um, you know, they don't have access to um, uh, these invasive procedures and things like that. So I wanted to talk, I wanted to hear from you a little bit more about how well you think it worked during the pandemic, like how confident do you feel like uh, that you, how confident were you using this um, when, when your need in your hospital was so great? 
I, I, I was actually very confident using it since it had been derived here and the population was the same and the people making the measures were all at first supervised by the people who derived the model. I would be pretty confident to take it outside, but for sure I would like external validation before taking it outside and saying, well, this works. Uh, I, I think we certainly need external validation and we're actually working on that. Uh, mm -hmm. Anne uh, is, is working on working with us uh, <laughs> on that. Um, we have a Canadian procedure database where we're currently basically entering the results and all the parameters necessary to calculate this and also other research questions we have for patients with um, normal mediastinum. So uh, several centers in Canada right now, when they do um, mediastinal staging for a radiologically normal mediastinum, as the patients in this study, they're entering numerous things to answer questions we have, but they're also entering indirectly all the parameters to calculate. They don't see the number, but I get the number when they enter their data. And basically they, they have a follow-up questionnaire three months after, well, they'll look at the, surging, the surgery that was done and we'll be able to validate the score. And we actually recently, uh, uh, two weeks ago, came up with a great opportunity to validate it with a large cohort in France, in Marseille, uh, where I actually uh, trained part of my AP training and they have a, a surgical volume in thoracic surgery, which is, I think, the second largest in France. Uh, and they have a big surgical cohort where they have all their imaging. And we have someone there that is interested, maybe we hope it works out in 2022 to look at this cohort and basically uh, give us the information to calculate our model in their cohort where they already have the surgical results. So that'll be two interesting options to validate. So I hope that in 2022, we can get the validation done and eventually it takes time to publish work, but uh, hope we publish it after. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point that although, you know, the results of your study are really impressive, I think, and, and, um, and how good your model um, is, but, you know, we should wait before starting to apply this in our own clinical setting, wait for validation because so far, what we know is that it works at your institution. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to get Dr. Arelli um, into the conversation a little bit. She has some questions also. So speaking on behalf of the audience, I think some of the, you hit on this, both of you, um, but what are you, what do you feel are some of the strengths of your actual study and some of the weaknesses of the study? Uh, do you want to go first, Pascal, or do you want me to go? No, you can go. Uh, I, I think uh, one of the strengths is the size. So we have a, a large size uh, cohort. Uh, so that's one important thing. Eight, 800 patients is, is a pretty large cohort in the domain. The other strength is we had surgical staging for all these patients. Um, so that, that clearly gives us the gold standard and answer as do they have occult mediastinal disease? And when we looked at the staging is was performed well, uh, or surgeons are part of the, I always have a hard time uh, staging, uh, IASLC guidelines where they basically compile to create stage and they are strict standards. So our surgeons uh, have uh, strict standards for performing optimal surgical staging. So I think the information we're working with is very good quality. Um, so I think those are the, the main strengths. And the other strength is the novelty of the lymph node size as a continuous variable and measuring it uh, 
which makes the, the score strong. And I think the main weakness we mentioned a couple of times, but we really need to mention that is the external validation. Uh, I think that's the issue. I was really surprised that I didn't get too many comments from the reviewer on that. I think they um, noted it, but said it would be unfair to ask for it right now. Um, but uh, I think that that clearly has to be mentioned. And another weakness, uh, as Anne mentioned, is what you do with the results. We don't completely have the answer yet. Um, certainly, similarly in ILD, I'm currently working on their ILD project and it's the same thing. We completely not have all the answers as what to do with the results. So the tool is not uh, perfect yet. And the point we didn't mention yet and I think is very important uh, is, uh, well, what you do with a negative EBIS also, uh, because EBIS uh, is a very good tool. It has almost taken, um, it, it, we see in our institution, basically the EBIS number since uh, late 2000s increase and the mediastinoscopy number go down. And basically surgeons almost never perform mediastinoscopy now, but there are situations where you can still need mediastinoscopy. And sometimes I think uh, it's like bringing an old fashioned back. Uh, there are times where you need that. And EBIS in the normal mediastinum is not perfect. And that's something also you need to take into account. There's a, a very nice meta-analysis in the Journal of Bronchoscopy, a JOPIP, uh, which showed that in the normal mediastinum, the sensitivity of EBUS is about 50%. So when you have a, a negative EBUS, it doesn't mean uh, that uh, there's nothing there. Uh, it would be great if it was a, a higher sensitivity and initial papers had shown higher sensitivity because they were uh, going after abnormal lymph nodes. Uh, putting a needle in a two centimeter lymph node, which is full of cancer is high yield, but putting a, a needle in a six millimeter lymph node with four cancer cells, well, you might do a great job, put your needle on your ultrasound image right in the lymph node, but you might not get those cancer cells while they're there. Uh, so, so that's certainly an issue. So the imperfect uh, concordance with what you find on EBIS and uh, what really there is, is, is a question that we need to study, but the model could be also useful uh, in that way. Well, let's say you have a 40% probability and uh, you perform EBIS, which has a 50% sensitivity. Well, your post-test probability is still 20% of occult mediastinal disease. So you may need to perform MEAD uh, in that patient to be sure he does not have occult mediastinal disease, especially if it's a, a more complex surgery or a frail patient. You certainly want to know that preoperatively. Uh, and in another way, well, if you have a 15% probability and you perform EBUS and you decrease it to 7%, well, maybe you don't want to perform MEAD for that remaining 70%, uh, that remaining 7%, which you, you won't maybe not even find on MEAD. But studies have shown that in the normal, there's actually one good study on the subject uh, by the uh, a group from Belgium, which showed uh, basically that uh, MEAD gynoscopy increased the sensitivity further, uh, but not to 100%. There are stations as stations five and six, which are not easily accessible uh, mm. by EBIS alone uh, or by MEAD either. So there are stations we're not gonna find even if we do all the tests we have and uh, we can't uh, poke a patient apart prior to uh, treating them, but certainly something to consider. Sure. I, I will add an additional strength I found to the model was the fact that you didn't end up including histology because I always find it's problematic to have histology of the primary tumor 
in a model to predict mediastinal disease when our guidelines say that we should go after nodes first, right, in general, that try to go to the highest stage. So if there's N1 disease, we're not going to have uh, or suspected N1 disease, we may not have tissue diagnosis before we make a decision on, on whether to do EBUS. So, so, so I thought that's, that's great that that wasn't necessary in order to calculate your, yeah. your probability of occult mediastinal disease. And that Thank was, you, Dr. Horton. That Sorry, was one of the points we wanted to look at because we wanted a model that was usable in clinical context. Like as Pascal said, you don't need a special computer software to calculate it. And you don't, you don't want to include information that you all have before the surgery to predict what you should do before surgery. Right. We're going to have to wrap up real quick, but I did want to make sure that the audience had a chance to see the actual model. So I know that um, Dr. Roy has it available. If we could just see the calculator, that'd be great. Thank you. So oh, I, I, I just shared it. Actually, uh, if you click on the link, you're going to be able to download. A, it's a, just an Excel form that you can get on your uh, on your computer. So it's accessible easily on the Université Laval uh, website. And we get, it gives, so you, you write here lesion, lesion location, if it's central or not, uh, lymph node size in millimeters, uh, then lesion SUV, uh, presence of uh, N1 or, uh, or not. And then it gives you a probability and, it, and you can see that the, the formula is right there. Uh, so very easy to use. And as uh, Dr. Fortin uh, said, the lymph node size is really the, the main driver of the uh, of the of the probability. So if I, I change a seven for a nine millimeters, then it's going to double the probability of uh, having an N2 disease. Uh, it's not pertinent to get the, uh, higher than nine because then it's going to be abnormal <laughs> uh, lymph, uh, lymph node. So it's not the, it's not the, the purpose of the of the score but uh, so that, that's that's how you use, use it so very easy to use on your computer you just uh, install it on the uh, on your uh, desktop of the computer you use to uh, triage the, the the cases of ebus and it's easy easy to use and thank you for showing that to us appreciate I, it i guess after external validation you'll be working on the app <laughs> yeah. Exactly. As you can see, I'm I'm very technology friendly. I manage, but it'll change the color if you get a higher probability. I was very proud of that. My wife wasn't very impressed. Uh, but the app is basically the issue is uh, we wanted external validation before yeah. disseminating it. So uh, people told me, well, why don't you have an app? Why don't you put it on MedCalc? And I said, well. I don't want this to be available if it's not validated. I want it to be validated before having an app. And actually, and rightfully, I discovered that MedCalc won't put something up if you don't have a validation. And I think that's uh, to their merit. I think it's a very good uh, philosophy. Well, thank you for sharing. And I think that the, the color change actually was very impressive. And I think it <laughs> helped everyone recognize that this is obviously going to have a higher risk factor. So, um, but we want to thank the authors for joining us today. Dr. Roy, Dr. Fartin, thank you so much. And Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining Divya and myself. Um, if you have any other closing statements, please feel free to chime them in. We have like five minutes left, but otherwise we thank you for your time and we're looking forward to using the model. Well, uh, we would like to thank you for uh, inviting us uh, and choosing our, our article for uh, this uh, discussion today. And I uh, would like uh, to acknowledge the hard work uh, from the first author, uh, Julien Gain, who wasn't available to uh, discuss uh, the, the article today, but he did a uh, hard work. So I wanted to acknowledge that. Absolutely.
Thank you very much for the opportunity. And like Pascalin said, uh, Pascalin actually started the database which led to this, but Julien was the one who uh, developed the bulk of the database. And every day I would see him when we had time between cases, screen a couple of nodes, take measures, and he put a lot of time into that. Unfortunately, because of time zones, he was currently in Russia and time was very difficult for him uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the afternoon like this would be in the middle of the night. So he decided to leave it place for Pascalin. Uh, great, thank you for measuring the first author. Thank, thanks to everybody. Um, this was a really great discussion um, and we're really excited to see the results of the validation studies that you're gonna have. Um, I hope that those, those studies um, come out positive and, and show that there is good external validation because I think um, what you guys have proposed could be potentially very helpful to patients and, and our community in, in general. So, um, uh, really impressive work overall. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Thank you very much. Bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye.